Welcome to episode four of Tech Noise, brought to you by abstract.tech. We have a really exciting show today because I am always fascinated by the studies around generations. So topic one is going to be around the generational learning styles and why they matter in AR and VR. One of the other issues with AR and VR is how do you quantify the return on the investment? So we're going to cover that in topic two. Before that, of course, I have to introduce my co-host. And for this one, I want you guys to get in the mindset of boxing. I'm going to go with a little boxing style for this intro. So let's drop that music. Standing in the red corner of the bounce house, measuring at a strong five foot six with heels on, is a man that is feared by no one. A man who floats like a bowling ball and stings like an adorable baby duckling. Fighting in the youth large red trunks, Eric, the electrifying Ewok, Racer! All right, that was really good. I can't even complain about that. I appreciate the youth large red trunks and I also appreciate the bounce house. I still use those less regularly than I'd like to. But it is a pleasure for me to introduce your other co-host. He's a man who embodies the anything you can do, I can do better mentality. A man whose voice is so loud, we switched the entire office from glassware to paper products. A man who just crushes 12 year olds in Rocket League on a weekly basis without remorse. He's as flexible as a sheet of styrofoam in an Alaskan blizzard, and as old as Mount Everest is tall. My co-host and friend, loosely, the CEO of Abstract, Mr. Brian Bogan. The competitive jab is actually very accurate. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Um, you know, I've been watching Last Dance with Michael Jordan, yeah. and I mean, his was on a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. But I do follow that same mindset. It's like, if you're gonna do it, you got to do it to win. Yeah. You're playing a 12-year-old in Rocket League, you got to crush them. Look, there's no 12-year-old. There's no adult leagues in Rocket League. It's everyone. Throw everybody into the mosh pit. Honestly, the 12-year-olds are probably the ones I'm losing to, and I'm, I'm probably likely. beating the ones that are my age. Very likely. Yeah, yeah, probably. All right. Well, cool. I think we've got an exciting podcast. Brian already broke down some of the topics we're talking about. Actually, the only topics we're talking about today. But I wanted to intro the first topic, generational learning styles. What are they, and why do they matter all right, so first off, I want to break down what the generations are that we're going to be talking about today. And first off, the most common one that uh, I guess of the two most common ones that people normally talk about are the boomers. Just a little background information. Boomers are typically 56 to 76 years old currently, and they make up around 25% of our labor force. Next up, we have the Gen Xers who are 41 to 55 years old, who make up approximately 33% of our current workforce. Millennials up next. 26 to 40 years old, making up 35% of our labor force. And the Gen Zs, who are 5 to 25 years old currently and make up just 5% of our labor force. So let's talk about these and why do they matter? What are the implications and uh, what are some of the problems that come along with having multiple generations within our workforce? I actually started diving in a lot with the uh learning about generations because uh, I, I saw this awesome TED talk by uh, Jason Dorsey and it was like in 2015 
And he broke down the whole idea around the the Gen Zs. The, he called them the iGen generation and how they're going to influence all the generations above them. And it's going to be around like kind of that first time that we truly experience that. Um, and and really dominant factor there was technology, how they grew up with technology, how they understand how it truly works versus just being tech dependent, right? And just relying on it because that's what we're familiar with. Um, once I saw that one, man, I honestly, I just find it fascinating. The, the, the only con to the generation side is most people always hear about all the bad traits that all these generations have, right? Right. So you hear about this like, this tension and feud between the baby boomers and the millennials and how they just butt heads all the time. And it's because they, they have these stereotypical traits. And, and one thing I noticed is that the more I was studying baby boomers, Gen X's, millennials, all of them, um, you know, you can bucket people, but really like, I think the, the value that you can take around that is that they all grew up a certain way around certain things culturally, right? Um, because there's other factors that come in, like, you know, the geographical location, you know, someone who maybe grows up in Spain is going to have maybe a different work ethic or life balance or structure to their day than someone in the United States. Right. And then if you look at someone who maybe is raised in you know, New York or Minnesota or California or Texas, they're going to have a different upbringing as well. Um, like for me, I have a weird one because my dad's 90 right? I'm 38 years old, so I'm not an old grumpy man like Eric calls me. <laughs> but, uh, but so, so my upbringing is very different. And, and I think, you know, I'm, I kind of fall in what they call that lost generation, which is usually like the late seventies, early eighties kids. They kind of take from the Gen X, they take from the millennial side and they kind of don't really know where they belong. Um, generally speaking. Um, but what I like to do is look at these generations and see where technology and, and how they were brought up really impacts the way they learn. And I think that's where you can start diving into this. Um, for example, the baby boomers did not grow up with video games, right? When they were kids, it just wasn't something that they did. You go to the Gen X side and some of them did, you know, um, I was born in 82. So right on the edge of both. So you had, you had Atari probably maybe Atari Nintendo. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the Atari. I didn't play it much, but my first real console that I was like playing actively was Nintendo. Yeah. You weren't allowed to touch the TV dial type situation. Yeah. 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 Jab, 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 jab. This is your moment to shine here in this podcast. Cause we talk about generations. I know that's so good. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and, and so why does this matter? Um, we're moving into this, into this, this learning style and these companies have always followed these traditional paths. You know, you're used to this classroom teaching, I and mean, that's still what we go through with school. It still exists today. Um, and and then college is the same way. And when you start getting certifications and all these things, you usually sit in a classroom and you take a test. Um, it's not really that hands-on initially, right? And then you start getting into hands-on learning as you start getting into that job force. Well, the problem is when you start looking at the trends in these generations. There's two things that I think are consistently happening. Attention spans are going down. Like the boomers, man, they can they can just sit there and like read and watch something and absorb it and do it for a long time. They're, right. they're the ones that kind of coined, you know, workaholics, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so they can just sit there and do that. And they're content with that. Uh, a lot of them. But 
all of the social media influence and video content, and you even look at social media trends over the last decade, people want faster information. You know, it goes from something like Facebook to Twitter, right? You got all these quick um, moments that you get to capture inside social. So attention spans are going down. So you have to keep people engaged. Well, if you look at the trends with them, technology has been going up. So the influence of technology with these younger generations is significant. Um, the millennials pretty much grew up with technology. Um, they did not hit the stage in the early or in the, in the later moments where they could actually truly understand how it all is working. But the Gen Zs do. You know, the, those kids are growing up coding. Like coding is part of the learning path mm. that they're taking. Where this is significant is when you start tying in augmented reality, virtual reality, gaming simulations, you are embracing the technology that those generations learn the best with. They all have started learning off of educational applications, little, little mini games that have some kind of driving force with numbers and letters and so on. Um, but they don't want to sit in a classroom for eight hours. Most of them, if not all of them, don't want to do that. Right. And that's the influence of technology. Um, where this, this feud, so to speak, can come in is really just them not being on the same page. It, you know, you know that kids younger, I mean, even like I still play video games. I'm 38, right? I don't play as much as I used to because I have kids. But, um, you know, as my kids start playing more video games as they get older, I've been playing with them, right? Um, and I love it. And it's fun. And I like to play the educational games with my daughter and all these different things. But the hard part is when you're deciding, you know what, as a company, I want to embrace the way people are learning now. Um, you have this difference of, of experiences throughout your childhood, college, and you know, your, your experience in the, in the workforce. And so a millennial, let's say, and we'll, we'll call this millennial a champion, says, you know what? I'd like to push more gaming-based training because I feel like the knowledge, retention, and transfer, all these different factors we talk about will be there if we do this. However, if they go up to a baby boomer who's usually a decision maker because they have the experience, they've worked themselves up to a, you know, a management decision-making um, role, if they go to them and say, you know, I want to create a video game and it's going to teach people about how to be safer on the workforce, like you're kind of going at it the wrong way. You know, you got to tell them the why. Like, why? Should you embrace gaming simulation or training? If you just go to them and say, this is what my initiative is, and this is going to help, it's not enough. You need to show them that these younger generations grew up playing video games. They look at statistics. They love gamification. They love all these things that score them and assess them, and it's not somebody screaming at them or telling them to do it better or do it this way. It's all the data that's coming in and telling them that where they need to improve and all these things. And they'll do it over and over again because they like that gaming aspect. Um, one thing I think is really cool. And, and I think this is an interesting connection between it all is baby boomers are actually, uh, usually competitive. Uh, I was reading about this and I thought it was really interesting. They're competitive, which may means if you're trying to get on the same page and say, where does gaming simulations come and play? It's competition. If you look at some of the younger ones, they're not as competitive, but they love the game, mm -hmm. right? So what happens if you add scoring and gamification into your training and you say, hey, look, I want to make our training competitive. I want to have everyone go in and compete for 
score and time and all these different things. And I want to do this effectively and it's going to motivate people to learn more, retain the information and ultimately perform their jobs better and safer. Yeah. Then you tell them how you're going to do it with, I'm going to build a video game and this is what's going to do. You're going to get them to support it. Yeah. No, honestly. Um, yeah. Specifically kind of like what you said, you have to kind of go in there and explain the generations, but also part of that, we, we let off with the composition of the labor force by generations. That wasn't by accident. I mean, right now between everybody except for the silent slash greatest generation and the boomers make up 73% of the current labor force with the majority obviously being Gen Xers and millennials. And then Gen Z are going to be the ones coming, you know, down the pike here for the foreseeable future. But I mean, like you had mentioned before, attention spans. So, I mean, you can kind of backtrack this, but Gen Z, they're said to have eight second attention spans, which is just incredibly, incredibly low. And obviously a baby boomer is going to have a much higher attention span for something like that. But um, specifically, the interesting things that I kind of found with this too is that the Gen Zs and just talking about how, how prevalent technology is, Gen Zs grew up and using essentially five screens. So you had your, your TV, your laptop, your desktop, tablet, and uh, is that all of them? And your smartphone. So that's five of them. So you had five, five screens. Millennials grew up with three. And Gen Xers, I don't even, did you guys have screens? <laughs> that it even like TVs maybe I guess maybe one screen does that count yeah we just we just didn't cry in front of it like you millennials oh no, that's that's the mirror that's not a screen you're confusing things your memory's ser- serving you wrong but anyway so that's the point I guess is that of 73 percent of the workforce is familiar with technology in some way so it should be a natural thing to gravitate towards these new learning methods that leverage interactivity and feedback, which is also a big part of, um, of these newer workers entering the workforce. Yeah. I think, um, on that note though, if you look at the workforce, you say 25% are, you know, or, or baby boomers, and then you have the, you know, a lot, a large portion with the Gen Xers and then the millennials. Um, but you think about the ones who need to be trained more, right. Need to mm-hmm. train better, need more technology in their day to day. It's going to be the ones who are more in the field, uh, the people who are in the laboratories or on an oil rig and all of this. And, and you're probably going to see a massive percentage of, of, of the millennials and Gen Xers in that category where a lot of times those baby boomers are going to be more in that management role. Right. So when you embrace the learning styles, you really are trying to say, how do I embrace the learning style of the millennials and the Gen Zs that are up and coming? I think the baby boomers and even the higher Gen Xers who are in that management, they can still benefit from this training. It's just, they're not the ones that are the dominant focus typically. Right. Right. Um, they're the ones that actually you can take and say, y'all have a wealth of information and knowledge. Let's use that to build the simulation and build this information. That's going to help train everyone better or do their job better. Right. Cause there's two pieces to it, typically operational and training. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's kind of weird, but even on the learning styles that actually plays into sales. Because when you're trying to approach people, right, learning and selling, like they want to retain that information, how do you embrace this technology too to, to teach them about your product or your service or these different things? So it, it plays into every aspect, which is pretty cool. Um, I, just, I just think when people think about how they learn, right, you have from the highest end, you have the baby boomers who, who learn from the traditional sense. Um, and you have the Gen Xers who, they actually became a little more on the self-reliant side. They're the ones that like 
They kind of want to be on their own. They want to problem solve. They want to, they want to figure things out a little bit on their own. They also want to multitask. So like they're an interesting one where they started being a little more on the independent side. Um, and then you have the millennials and the millennials grew up with the technology and, you know, they obviously get the worst name. I think when you hear about this like feud, which is, I don't know, pretty dumb to be honest with you. Like I think, uh, I saw a great, a great, uh, Ted talk that, that actually broke out and said, you know what, like forget the age group of the generations and forget this, like these stereotypical traits. Every single individual has their own traits. And, and, and I actually really like that, but you can still take the information from these generations and say, okay, these are traits that people are going to have. I don't care if they're 70 or 30, you know? And so what you have to do is figure out their generation, mainly for how they were raised and what they were used to, and then talk about how this technology plays in. But I can tell you this, if you're wanting to train your day-to-day -day people better and you want to do it right, you need to create more interaction, more engagement, more experiences. I don't care if the experiences are in person or in a game. That is absolutely crucial to help the millennials and then the Gen Zs train better. Um, you want to waste all of your money and, and spend it, then you're going to throw it in the traditional courses and fly people to a classroom and then have them test out. Guess what? A week later, they lose about 80% of that information. Right. So- so I, I think that that's something that we all need to consider is, is know the labor force of your company, know who's being trained. This stuff takes time. So if you're, if you're, if you're delaying any longer to get into simulation-based training, then you're, you're failing because you're missing the learning style of the, of the younger generation. Um, I got to take a tour of the Houston Community College. Um, they've been, you know, when you think of a community college, you think of people taking their basic courses, but man, like, they have this amazing VR lab and it has, you know, the, the VirtuX Omni platform and they are taking a much more project focused initiative in their classes where people get to like make little games in VR and play around with this stuff and understand how it works. And so they're diving more into really that hands-on experiential training, right? Um, and I love seeing that because I think at high schools and colleges have to embrace that learning path more because and they are, right? They are. But the problem is now if you go to a company, like let's say in oil and gas or construction, which is typically a little more behind the curve with technology, they're going to go from all of this like experiential learning and getting more hands-on stuff to a company that's going to put them in a classroom. Can you imagine sticking someone with an eight-second attention span in a, in a three-day workshop and expect them to actually come out knowing stuff? Yeah, no, that'd be... So, so, you know, I think that that's, if you're not doing that, then honestly, you're, you're just failing at your job. Um, and I think that's important to think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, uh, just one last thing before we move on to the, the next one. Uh, so with the, the baby boomers and obviously the percentages and stuff like that, you gotta keep in mind that 10,000 baby boomers retire every day. I think in what, until 2030. Wow. Every day. Yeah. I'd see a 2025 or 2030, something like that, but it's 10,000 a day essentially is the popular figure that's been quoted. And, uh, and yeah, so they are actively fading out of the workforce and you're going to replace them with Gen Z and then whatever is behind Gen Z. And typically, and you'll notice, I mean, if you're, we're looking at these on piece of paper right now, but these generations span approximately 20 years if you look backwards, but the generations moving forwards they're shaped by the things that happen 
in everyday life. Like there's, there's events that happen that shape behaviors. So 9-11 was a big example of, of what was the trigger point more or less for like the end of the millennials and people that would mark that as like an identifying aspect of their lives. Yeah, like how old are you when that happened? I would have been 11. Do you remember the moment? Yeah, I do. Yeah, okay. I was 11. Okay. But it was in it, middle school. Did it give you any feeling or was it just kind of something that happened because you were... It was just kind of scary. You didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, obviously seeing that kind of stuff on TV, that's, that's not, you know, that's that's not fun. And then you're wondering, like, are we going to war? Are we already in war? Yeah. And, you know, you're just a kid. You don't, you don't know any different. Yeah. I mean, I was in college and people were beating on my door saying we're being attacked and I turned on my tube TV and, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and saw it all happening, you know? So, like, I, I it's... I totally agree. Like it cannot be years based and there has to be a gray area with these generations and some of them don't even fit the mold and that's totally okay. Um, but I definitely agree that it's the events and the, the, the path, these things that happen, these moments in time, like the internet, mm. you know, yeah, um, and gaming, right? Like all of that plays yeah. into these, these, uh, these ways that you can classify how people grew up. And again, not all the traits are the same, but they did grow up the same in the same environment with the same limitations on technology or the advances on technology. Yeah, it's going to be weird because I think once you once AR and VR like gets to a more mature place, I think that'll probably be the trigger point of the next quote unquote generation. And you'll end up having uh, shorter generations as as you know technology progresses. I think that's really going to be the, the catalyst to to having this. And right now we're looking at I mean, if you take. If you include boomers, we're looking at four generations. And then that uh, the TED Talk, I think he had a good point, Jason Dorsey. And I'll go ahead and link to that in this uh, the description such, as well. So good. Even even though it's five years old, it's I think it's still very accurate. And it's, it's such a, he's such a good presenter with it. It's awesome TED Talk. Yeah. No, he had mentioned that uh, that you'll probably end up having six or seven generations in the workforce by the time you end up leaving it. Uh, I, you know what I think will be fascinating? Can you imagine, like right now, um, you know, the, the Gen Z's like, they, they don't really understand a landline really. Like they've never really used it. Yeah. You know, they're used to FaceTime, all these different things. Can you imagine if the next generation's like, wait, you had to hold a device in your hand, exactly, you had to hold right? a phone. Yep. Like why, why would you have to do that when you can just put this, these glasses on, you know, like yeah. it's, it's going to be second nature. It's like, they just don't even get it. It's going to be weird. All right. Well, that kind of leads into the next conversation, which is, um, basically what's the point of VR and AR? Like from an ROI perspective, uh, you know, where's the value? I feel like if we're, if we're talking about baby boomers right now being decision makers, what are they looking for to make something like this viable and, uh, viable in an organization really of, of scale? Yeah. I mean, typically there's, there's two easy ones, right? There's, is, is it going to provide me cost savings? Is it going to increase my revenue? Right. And, uh, and, and honestly, there's some other ones that, that kind of float around that are, you can't really quantify them. Some, some of them you actually can in a weird way. We'll get to in a little bit. But, but those are the two main ones if you're trying to just say, how do I quantify the, the value of these things? And then you have to break it up into kind of your, your two traditional ones that we keep talking about, which is operational and training. And so from the cost-saving side, you, you can start trying to run numbers and evaluate. And, and at first, you take, you're taking some like kind of guesstimations. And then you maybe build a proof of concept or a first version, and then you start getting real numbers, and then you find ways to maybe improve it, right? So for example, if you're going through like an inspection process, and you're saying, okay, right now we're using diagrams on a, on a laptop, and we're using these different like, you know, maybe using spreadsheets, or we're literally putting pen and paper, right? And we're doing this. If I incorporate this into an application, and I use something like augmented reality, for example, to help streamline that, 
what's the time savings there for me to one, finish my inspection, and then two, the report aspect. So if I'm doing it on paper, what do I have to do? I have to then take that to the office. I have to get it scanned in, or I have to have someone take all the data from my pictures and all these different things and then make a report or some type of digital asset and then put that somewhere. That's a slow process. But if you can streamline that, then you can start adding value and say, okay, by doing this digital inspection, automating all that backend stuff, what's the time savings based off the specific roles? So the technician doing the inspection, the supervisor verifying the inspection was done correctly, and then having that inspection report or that dot document generated and logged somewhere. Um, that's how you can take those different roles and say, how many in my company of those roles will be, will be doing this? What's their average cost you know, per hour, for example? And then there's your cost savings, right? Right. On the revenue side, it's okay. I do think, like, let's just follow the inspection pass. I already kind of went down that rabbit hole. Um, I, we offer inspections for our clients. Um, right now, when we finish our inspection, we give them a PDF. Is there a way that we can generate revenue differently than we've been thinking in the past? For example, what if we gave them a dashboard where they could see their inspections, they can see analytics around all of their inspections by location, by technician, they have a dashboard that shows their inspections, all these different aspects, right? Um, and you're actually adding tremendous value to what you're giving them outside of just a static PDF. And if you can generate revenue from that, right, that's going to add value. So there's, there's different ways that you can start determining revenue increasing. And that's also a big differentiator. So outside of what the licensing it or whatever you're going to do with it, like going to someone and saying, okay, you have 20 other vendors like us, but we're the only ones offering you this. Yeah. That's yeah, a I big mean, deal. Imagine if you're uh, a large green tractor company and uh, you have an app that provides the ability for anybody to to guide somebody through, a, you know, this, uh, maybe it's a procedure I don't know, to change the oil of the tractor. I don't know anything about tractors. I know they have wheels that are bigger than why. me. No, I'm actually not from California. Let's make that clear. Um, but yeah, so I mean, if you're going to be able to provide somebody with some sort of uh, self-diagnostics app that gives them heads up indicators as to what they should be doing next, so they don't have to like try and flip through some book that has liquids spilled on it and, you know, cow poop or whatever they do there. You're just going on a, I'm just, just going know, I don't deep, know. deep. Anyways, but yeah, you can add that and, uh, you know, maybe that's another, you know, 10 bucks a month for that, for that feature. Yeah. yeah, I think so. So the way you would calculate this, right, is is the cost saving side I already talked about. But on the revenue side, actually on both of them, you have to make some assumptions first off. You have to say, okay, how am I doing it now? And, and actually figure out those numbers, which actually is not that hard to do. You can, you can clock it. You can track someone, whatever the case is. Then you start making those assumptions on if I digitize this and avoid this, this is the amount of increased revenue or time savings it can generate. I think that that like there's a nice way to break that down. And I think people have to do that because you have to show business value for this or else your case is useless. I mean, so I guess that's the question though. So whose responsibility is that really? I mean, if somebody came to you today and they said, hey, look, I've got this idea for this. And I guess keeping in mind that this is new technology, people don't quite understand it. They may not even know how to even get from point A to point B. And then how do you help guide them to that, hey, this might actually be a revenue player. How can we, how can we help them along that journey? 
you know, it's, it's hard because like, it's a, it's a cart before the horse kind of thing. So like as a company who offers these services, right. As, as abstract does, like we have to sell it. Right. Which gets tricky because we, we're usually talking to like an influencer, someone who wants to push an initiative and say, I want to incorporate this in my t- department. I got to get signed off from management. We're like, great. They want to do this. We help them through the technology, the creative, all these different aspects, put together a nice statement of work that outlines it all. And then boom, we're kind of left out. The problem with that is like the business value has not been assessed yet. So all they're doing is saying, I want to do this. And again, we're missing the why. Right. So it, it's a little tricky. So typically we, we've now kind of moved over and said, you know what? Like we can't go into your company and evaluate every minute of the day. But what we can do is we can go high level, make some assumptions at the beginning. We won't put it in the statement of work, but we can say, hey, look, like by doing this, if there's 1,500 employees that'll be touching this, this is the potential on a conservative side. We typically like to be more conservative on those. This is typically what you can see in savings, right? Yeah. Um, but what I like to do is once we start working on the project, like the proof of concept, I like to really start evaluating those numbers and say, okay, now that you've, we have some buy-in, let's start showing, oh, wait, if we did this for the next version, this would shave off 30 seconds or a minute per step in your inspection or whatever the case is, and then start adding more improvement on the efficiency and effectiveness. So I guess let's give some examples here on the cost savings side specifically, and we'll kind of break it down because like we talked about, it does vary by business, vary by, vary by businesses, the teeth, the tongue, and the lips. <laughs> There's something along those you lines. You are a talker. Yeah. Uh, anyways, so, yeah. So I guess the, the big thing is, is let's kind of break down by business size. So uh, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, they consider a small business any company that has 50 employees or less. Clearly, um, the PPP setup was significantly different than the small business. Interesting you say that. So the SBA, I looked at this. So the Small Business Association classifies a company that makes less than, I think it's $33.5 million a year and has less than 500 employees, a small business. It's ridiculous. Which by these standards, it's like every anything over 500 employees is considered enterprise according to this uh, organization. So anyway, so small business in this case, we'll just break it down, say 50 employees or less. Medium business is 51 to 250 employees, and they consider enterprise essentially anything larger than 250 employees. So just kind of from like a cost assumption setup, uh, let's start with a small business case first. So say the company has 50 employees, say half of those employees are operational folks who would touch in some way this app and could benefit from it. They save an hour a week. Uh, obviously, there's four weeks in a month, and then there's 12 months in a year. Uh, if you then extrapolate that out based on the average wage of an employee in the United States, which came out to around $66,000 and change, according to Statista, which averages to $32 an hour, let's call it 25. Anyways, making a couple of assumptions here. Basically, if somebody saves an hour a week at times 25 employees times the number of hours a month in a year, it comes out to $30,000 in savings a year just after one year. After three years, it's $90,000. So let's, let's move it up now. So say it's a, a medium business on the top end, say it's 250 employees and 50% can benefit. Now you got 125. The number pops up after a year to $150,000 a year in savings and almost a half million dollars by year three. That's for a medium business. So we'll scale it up two more times. So a thousand employees comes out to $1.2 million a year in savings, 3.6 million after, after three years. 10,000 employees is 12 million a year. 100,000 employees is $120 million a year 
and $360 million by year three. Like the, the ability, and that's just one hour a week. If you save two, double everything. It's just astounding how, how much this can be used in that regard um, to actually show ROI in the matter of cost savings. And this isn't even assuming that there's a revenue play involved in it, which some, some of these uh, instances and, and after we talk to people about, they can absolutely be used on both sides of the fence. Yeah, I mean, uh, time and time again, we meet with, you know, uh, corporations like we typically are more on the enterprise side, right? Especially based off these numbers. Um, and I love, I actually love going through that exercise with them because I mean, if you think about one hour a week, so I, I know we did one, for example, and it, it only touched like a third of their workforce, the, the concept, but I mean, we, we went with one hour conservatively and the guy was like, I mean, two hours conservatively is, is probably still less. So we went with two. Right. Um, and then we started looking at it like, okay, uh, they're, they're giving clients something like this. We can add a rev model here uh, for little aspects from a remote position, remote access, and all these different factors. And so like, it was really easy to start adding revenue to the point where I started looking at the numbers and I'm like, okay, like this seems like too much time. But then you backtrack, you like reverse engineer it, and you go back to the very beginning. You're like, wow, we're actually being really conservative here. Um, and I think that's why the enterprise, if enterprises aren't looking at this, like, gosh, what a mistake, because yeah. I can understand like the small business, it, this is hard because they're going to spend, it's in some cases similar to what an enterprise will spend. Mm -hmm. Um, so they're not going to see that significant return. Right. But when you look at this enterprise side, I mean, it's almost a no brainer to start finding the right use cases to solve, right. These problems. And then in turn show this, this cost savings, especially right now with COVID going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes it even more important than ever before. The, the only thing that doesn't, so, so let's talk about things that you can't really quantify, but they add value. Like when you bring in game-based training, um, even things like augmented reality in, in the, in the facilities or, you know, in the field, like you're going to train your workforce better. Can you quantify that? Well, Just, you you kind of can. You can. So there's actually numbers regarding that. Um, I think we might have talked about it on, on, a, on a previous podcast, but 40% uh, of employees who receive poor job training leave their positions within the first year, citing lack of skills training and development as the principal reason for moving on. So it could actually help you reduce your turnover, and turnover costs are pretty substantial. Yeah. For so I guess you could take people. it and say, okay, I'm going to assume that we cut that in half, right? And then see what the, the value, because I know like, turning over a position could be very expensive. Um, the training aspect, all the different factors, right? Um, because it also goes into happier employee, you know, um, which you can't really say, like, has the happiness of my employees increased from this? You can't really do that, but you can start seeing less turnover. And therefore that probably means they're comfortable they're, they're and they're satisfied. satisfied. Right. Um, but, but the parts of that that you can't necessarily quantify is like, how often do they ask for help? Like, you know, I, that would be very difficult to do. You could do it, but it'd be like, it'd be like, like tracking track how, yeah, it'd be like tracking how many stuff. less times I email someone or call them. Like it's, it's too difficult to go that granular, but more than likely with a better trained workforce, they're asking less questions. They're a little more independent and so on. Right. Um, but I do agree T totally with the turnover. It's a really good point. Um, but then also safety. And I think you can quantify that to a degree. It'd be, it'd be a little loose because, you know, you can say, okay, we have statistics on how this can improve the way people train and the knowledge uh, retention. We have that. But 
Um, now we know they're performing better, right? And now you can start seeing a decrease in, let's say, injuries and things like that. Yeah, insurance premiums, maybe. Yeah, but the hard part is like, is it a direct? Is it a direct correlation to the training, the simulations? Because there might be other things and yeah, factors that are true. coming in, and also like um, talking to um, uh, Nathan, our last in our last podcast, it was like, what if they don't report it? What if they know because it's all based off scoring? They're just reporting less, right? Right. So there are little things that it's hard to to, to quantify, but the important thing is if you truly want safer employees. You got to use something that's going to help them retain the information, get more comfortable with uh, extraordinary circumstances in their job, which you can do in simulation-based training. Um, so these are like all really, really great things to try to quantify and look at. And then as you are working on these initiatives, start tracking the data and start finding those numbers. And if you're showing the returns, for example, that Eric was putting together with those calculations, it's a no-brainer to start finding more opportunities and ways to tie in th this this uh, technology to different use cases to start showing more ROI from a cost savings or revenue side. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's uh, there's plenty of things that companies should be looking at AR and VR technologies for. Um, obviously, we talked about the ROI, you know, cost savings versus revenue, and then again the intangibles. Like there's there's a lot of option, a lot of opportunity to integrate this in a cost-effective way that can actually help the bottom line. I think a lot of people get little sticker shock sometimes from the cost of, of development of these apps because it's there is some time involved with doing so and making you know everything work the way it should and the equipment itself. Yeah, but, but, but think about it this way. If I went to you, Eric, and I said, okay, this is the initiative I want to do. It's going to cost you $3 million. You're going to go, $3 million? That's insane. But if I went to you and said, hey, look, I want to build this application. I, I see that it's going to like conservatively save two hours a week for 2,000 employees or 5,000 employees or 10,000. It's going to cost us $3 million, but if those numbers are even close to being right, it's going to save us $50 million over right. three years, you know, whatever it is. Like that $3 million actually makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I think that's your point. So that's what you deliver to the baby boomers. Yeah. <laughs> Very good point. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Show them the value, show them the why before you start diving into this technology because they didn't grow up with this technology. Um, they may understand it at this point, but they didn't grow up with it. You've, you know, people, the younger ones have lived it. So what'd you learn today? Uh, hopefully you learned that, you know, not every generation is, are a bunch of idiots, like uh, the typical negative stuff you see on, on online as you search it. Like we all have great traits. We all have advantages and disadvantages, but you have to understand how people were raised, what they grew up around, and their familiarity with technology like this. And make sure when you're going to deliver an initiative and try to push this stuff that you're actually quantifying it, showing the value and the why it matters and things like that, like the cost savings and revenue. Um, that's what we hope you take from it. So Perfect. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess that ends the podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, Eric's going to go put on his Youth Large Red Trunks, and we're going to go through a boxing match. Three rounds five minutes and we're going to see who's determined the winner i actually like that we should uh we should put that up on youtube Ooh, like a uh i don't know no i'd, I'd be afraid actually i guess my boxing can't be that awkward i would hate it if i like look like i'm pawing i'm actually curious if you've got a higher reach to me or longer reach i probably higher? I, I, I'm a longer clearly reach. higher well yeah clearly higher. all right folks we'll see you next time yeah take care <laughs>